into the net by Kylian Mbappe. Oh, Benyera, beautifully done. Cornet finds Dembele. The first touch is good. The second is deadly. Neymar still. Oh, my word, what a goal. Golovin, lovely finish. Oh, yes, delivery. Gendouzi's header. Here's an opportunity, Sanchez. Outrageous goal from Gael Kakuta. Hello everyone and welcome to Le Beaujeu, the official Ligue 1 Uber Eats podcast in English. Today we're bringing you episode 3 of the 2023-24 season, where after the four opening rounds, Monaco are top of the tree, taking 10 points from a possible 12. But after a slowish start, PSG are starting to hit their stride right behind them. Brest and Reims are leading the race to be officially named the early season surprise package, while at the other end of the table, it's all doom and gloom for Olympic Lyonnais, but they are not alone in the cellar. The transfer window is shut and we'll be selecting our best pieces of business. The new European season is upon us and we'll be looking ahead to our Ligue 1 club's prospects from PSG in the Champions League to Lille in the Conference League and everyone in between. We have lots of Ligue 1 Uber Eats news, views and features to come. Professor Andreas Evagora is back with his look at the legendary Lyon side that started their seven-year French title hegemony with their very late, late win in 2002. And then Ligue 1 commentator Angus Tarod introduces us to one of Ligue 1 Uber Eats' most explosive newcomers, the first Jordanian to play in France's top flight, Moussa Al-Tamari, who has been lighting up Montpellier's start to the season with some stellar performances. We'll also have Deja Who, our famously tough quiz that gives you a chance to win a Ligue 1 jersey. But now it's time to say bonjour to our array of illustrious Ligue 1 experts, producer Stephen, pulling out the A-list for episode three. A for Andreas, Andy and Angus. Angus Tarod, thank you for joining us. How are you? Hello, very well. Thank you very much. Uh, first, first appearance of the season. I've been doing my summer training, so I'm all ready to go. What do you think we're going to ask you right off the bat, Angus? Any ideas? Uh, well, uh, it's coming. I'm, I'm Don't really worry. looking it's forward coming. to the Champions League uh, part of this, um, this program, <laughs> podcast. <laughs> exactly. We're going to be coming straight to you for some predictions soon. Andy Scott, busy weekend for you? Hi, Robbie. Yeah, very busy weekend. Thank you very much. Well, um, but, you know, it's been good to get back into the, the league on mix. And, of course, not under any circumstances have we been having terrible sound problems this morning. So, um Hopefully that doesn't get in the way of things. But yeah, it's good to be here. Fantastic. I was listening to you this afternoon here in Australia on the Highlights Show as well. Andreas Evagora, I was listening to your commentary over the weekend as well. How are you settling back into the new Ligue 1 season? Oh, very well. That's nice of you. Um, glad someone's listening in. Yeah, I was listening to Nantes Marseille and I did uh, the PSG match for another outlet last night. It's all busy. Bien rodé, as the French would say. Oh, I like it. Bien rodé. We'll have to come to you soon for for the dictionary meaning of that. We're going to introduce that this year as well. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on the official website. Check out all the latest news and videos at league1.com. We're on Twitter at league1 underscore ENG for English. And of course, this is the official League 1 podcast, Le Bourgeois. And you can like, subscribe and follow us on all your podcast platforms. Well, without any further ado, it's time to take a look at what's been happening on the pitch in the last two weeks since we were last with you. After a slow start, PSG and their new attacking armada 
are firing on all cylinders. But speaking of scoring goals, it's Monaco who are leading the way. 13 goals scored in three wins and a draw so far. And PSG and Monaco, two of the five undefeated sides. They're joined by Marseille, Rennes and Nice in that department. Nice, who got their first win of the campaign, 2-0 over their former coach, Patrick Vieira and Strasbourg in week four. The surprises, well, they're coming in fourth and fifth place with Reims and Brest, respectively. Question for Andreas. First up, last season, PSG sat top of the table for all 38 rounds. Now, obviously, we've only got 34 rounds this year, so we're not going to have a repeat performance. But after four games, do we already have our top three for the rest of the season? Monaco, PSG and Marseille, they're big names and they've hit some form early. But can the likes of Reims or Brest maybe build on what were essentially strong finishers last season and they're performing again? Could they be long-term surprise packages this season? Um, Sorry to be negative, but I think no and no. Uh, Well, PSG, yeah, they're in the top three. Um, Monaco have started well. It's early days. Marseille, I was interested in the um, season preview uh, with Andy Scott. Um, I agree with most of what he said, but I'm a little bit less optimistic about Marseille's chances, I must say, than than Andy. Um, They've just had so many changes. When you look at their ins and outs, you know, the list fills a page. And I know that's part of modern football, but they... They've they've lost. I think they're three top scorers, you know, including the likes of Tavares and and Undo as well as Sanchez. Um, I liked uh, is Ismail Assar. I think uh, he's a really good buy, very impressive, and he was good at Nantes. Uh, Pierre Emerick Aubameyang. Look, I was his biggest fan when he was in his pomp at Dortmund and at Arsenal. I just don't think the timing of transfers are all about timing, and I think Aubameyang has lost that burst of speed over twenty thirty meters. And I don't think, well, I, I hope I'm wrong because he seems like a very nice guy, but is that worth such a big chunk of the of the salary? Uh, so I, I would I would hold my fire about Monaco and Marseille for the moment. I don't think Ohans, uh are top three or four material. I still think it's early days. I still think Ren could be top three or four. And Lille as well, who are my outside, uh, you know, that's putting my head on the chopping block. I think they could be top four as well. So it's early days. But um, certainly encouraging signs, especially for Monaco. Well, Aubameyang, he, he was so incredibly quick when he first arrived in, in, in French football. His dad was actually head scout at AC Milan, and he came through the ranks as a, as a, as a young kid at, at AC Milan before moving back to France. When he signed for Saint-Étienne, I, um, I was having a chat to Carlos Bocanegra, the United States captain. And I, and I asked him, how's the new player? He's pretty quick, isn't he? And, and Carlos said, I haven't seen his face yet. Just chasing him from behind every time all over, all over the pitch because he's, he's that quick. And I guess, you know, we're, we're a decade on from that now with uh, Pierre Emmerich. So perhaps not with that same pace, although he did almost score a late winner in that, uh, that game on the weekend. He was very close indeed against Nantes with one that flashed just by the post. And still looking for that first goal. A little lower down the table, we've got promoted sides, Loave and Metz, who both have five points. Metz knocking off Clermont in week three, and Loave getting their first Ligue 1 win since 2009, when they hammered Lorient 3-0 at the weekend. They sit in mid-table with the likes of Strasbourg, Toulouse and Montpellier. Angus, last season, promoted Ajaxio and Auxerre, both went straight back down. Toulouse survived and even did better than survive, really, by lifting the cup 
as well with their a, a, a modern type of football, very attacking, aggressive style of play. Luav seemed to be cut from that same cloth on what we've seen so far. Mets certainly showing plenty of character as well in a, in a different register. Do you think they have enough from what we've seen in this first month to, to survive the drop? Well, I'd say they've got the potential, but it's still very, very, very early, as you say. Toulouse not only won the cup, but of course, they were never really in relegation trouble either at all. They were mid-sable pretty much all the way through the season. So that was pretty, very successful. Then they got rid of, then of course, their coach left because he didn't like the money ball approach. Um, whether or not they can keep that going into a second season is a, is a another challenge for Damien Camioli over there, down there in the southwest. But Le Havre, the trouble is that because they haven't been in the top flight for a long time, it's very hard to really assess how they're going to react because they haven't really brought in any players you would regard as like super big hitters. That, uh, but then you know they're a small club, so it's, it's all about survival. I have to say I'm more worried about Mets. I think though, I think Mets are, are the the yo-yo club of um, of uh, French football, and they have a horrible habit of going up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, and so until they can get that sorted out, then they're one of mine to go down, actually. I, I think if I would dare, it probably means they'll be safe now that I've actually they might qualify to go for down. The but Champions I think they'll League. go down. I think Claremont will struggle this season as well, to be honest with you. I don't think Claremont are going to be able to, to punch above their weight again. I think that, unfortunately, they will go down, even though I like the club. Well, there have been very promising starts so far. They will be recorded by producer Stephen, your little sneaky predictions, trying to get them in there so that we avoid the, the main prediction spot that we have reserved for you, Angus, in a couple of moments' time. But at the other end of the table, or if we keep heading south, Nantes, yes. Clermont, but perhaps most astonishingly of all, Lens and Lyon are four clubs still without a win. Nantes, barely flying with two draws and two points from their four opening games compared to the other three including a very courageous point at home to Marseille last Saturday where they were a goal down and then a man down inside the opening 15 minutes, but they managed to come back and uh, finished 1-1 against Marseille at home in a fantastic atmosphere for most inside La Bourgeois Stadium. But beaten 3-0 by Monaco, Lens, who had the best defence last year, have conceded 10 goals already and have a solitary point as do Lyon, who have also conceded 10 goals. They have the worst defences in the land. And poor old Olympic Lyonnais, like naughty schoolboys, they were berated by their unhappy fans at the end of their 4-1 loss to PSG on the weekend. That had followed a fortuitous scoreless draw away to Nice the week before that. Um, Andy, they were quite remarkable scenes after the game. I mean, they won the second half 1-0 almost, and they had chances. Donnarumma, you know, Produced a couple of fantastic saves. I'm being a little bit facetious because Paris Saint-Germain were electric in that first half and we saw so much potential there. But I'll, I'll couch it this way. Who should we be more worried about? Olympic Lyonnais and Laurent Blanc with those scenes at the end of the match and a club that's clearly just free fall at the moment or a Lens side and Francaise who were just two weeks away from starting their first Champions League campaign in nearly two decades, and uh, seem to have lost their mojo? Well, it's a good question. I mean, they're two very big uh, very big clubs, but I think that the, the answer is clearly Olympique Lyonnais. I mean, it's, you know, the last time I was on the podcast um, in, in the, the season preview edition, um, you know, we discussed then about the problems at Lyon and the problems have not been resolved in the intervening period, the sort of three or four weeks since, since that podcast. 
Lyon are a club with major off-field problems. There is an open war, as it's being described, between between the new owner John Texter and the former owner Jean-Michel Olas, who's you know who's who's frozen, who's requested the freezing of of Lyon accounts because he says that Texter should have paid, um, I think, about fourteen and a half million euros to buy uh, a portion of the the remaining shares that Olas's company retains in the club. So this is going on, and it's it's a major major problem for Lyon off the field. Um, and it's very difficult for any club to, 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 you know, for any football team to do their job properly when they have that kind of sort of noise and, and trouble off the pitch. Um, so yesterday's result at the in, in Lyon was absolutely no surprise whatsoever. Laurent Blanc is very downbeat. He's being quite, um, sometimes he's quite, finding quite hard to read Laurent Blanc. Is he being like sarcastic? Is he being, um, you know, is he resigned to his fate or is he simply being honest about the situation? There's obviously mm-hmm. division within the, the, the ranks, within the club support as to whether he should be um, retained or, or fired. There was a, a banner held up by supporters last night calling on him to resign. The, the, the footage of the, uh, at the end of the game, which is broadcast by um, Amazon Prime here in France, and, and it's got a lot of play this morning. We're talking about it on the radio this morning here as well, um, was absolutely astonishing. Uh, really incredible to see the the, the capo, the head ultra, uh, talking to the, giving them a dusting down to the players as though they were a bunch of naughty schoolboys and saying, you know, if there are if there are any leaders in the in the dressing room, you no longer have the right to to remain silent. Speak up now, and they're kind of stand the players kind of standing there, um, just taking this in. You don't know whether it's really affected them. But Lyon are a club with huge problems, and I still don't think they're going to get relegated. There are lots of um, mitigating factors. There was no Alexandre Lacazette last night. They've got new guys coming in. They've obviously lost Bradley Barcola, who got a very warm reception, has returned to Lyon last night. You compare that to Lens, um, I think we could have foreseen that Lens would have a, 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 a best regime, as they say here, sort of drop off uh, from, from the incredible finish they had to last season. I don't think people expected them to have only one point after four games. The last two matches have been very difficult. They've played the the best two teams really at the start of this season in Monaco and PSG, and they've, they they didn't turn up against Monaco. It must be said, but I wouldn't be worried about Lens. I think they will climb the table. I I don't think they'll be where they were last season, and I think it will be interesting to see how the Champions League goes. But I think as a club, I'm not particularly worried about Lens. I think you have to be very worried indeed about Lyon, um, even if it's not a case of them being in relegation trouble all season. The 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 problems there go much deeper than simply what's happening on the pitch. But it will be interesting to see how long Laurent Blanc remains in that job. It certainly will be. I think there are probably very short odds that he will be one of the first to go. They call it PPH in France. Passe-pas hiver. He won't make it through the winter. Angus. Yeah, and then, of course, he gave that uh, that interview as well, didn't he, that went, went viral, where he was asked, what should you change then? And he said, well, a new coach. And the, the, the interviewer nearly fell off the back of her microphone, didn't she? I mean, it was an astonishing... And she had to ask again because she thought she'd misunderstood what he'd said. And, and it sort of lends to what Andy's saying. is It's quite hard to read what on earth is going through Laurent Blanc's head. Because let's not forget, he's well used to winning with Paris Saint-Germain. And now he's marched into um, Lyon. And all of a sudden, they seem all over the place. Andreas, I just want to come back to you because you've been uh, following, like, like all of us, French football for more than two decades. but also. Um, your roots are very solid in, in English football as well. The scenes at the end of the game of the, the, the players who clearly knew they, they could not just walk off the pitch. They, they had a moral obligation or a, 
a political obligation or they just knew that it was probably in their best interest to go cap in hand, uh, like as Andy said, naughty schoolboys up to face the the headmasters, the the capo, the ultras, who let them have it. I mean, from from both barrels, uh, there were some fairly you know unsavory terms to describe certain players that had left the club. We saw that with Bradley Barcola, who who was moved to PSG midweek and then came back. I mean, essentially, Olympic Lyonnais had to sell him. They had to sell someone for some big money. They're, they're in a financial situation where I think they didn't have much choice. But could we see, I mean, we've seen scenes like that in Italy, probably, where it's where the, the fan culture is very political. Can you imagine, ever imagine seeing something like that in England, where, where the, the fans organize themselves, the home fans behind the goal, and the, the team has to go over and just be given a dressing down like that? No, I don't think it would happen in England. The only time I've seen that in England was the reaction to the Super League really last year. I mean, a bit of background. I think Oles put some oil on the flames on the morning of the match. He went on national television and he said, I would have never have sold Barcola, you know, and so that didn't make things better. I mean, we have to be honest, the last few years, Lyon have sold some great players as well, but they really did. I think they went a little bit too far by, by selling um, Barcola and a, a whole load of players over the summer. Um, I don't think it would happen in, in England. It is very much a French thing and, uh, and something that is evident in some countries in Europe. Because remember that the ultras uh, do own part of the ground. I mean, they're in charge of selling tickets and distributing tickets. It's not just in England where, where people are, are customers. So they do have a real power. And they are listened to much more. I think the equivalent in England would be played out in the press. You know, there, all these arguments would happen uh, in, in England's uh, rabid uh, tabloid culture. So it, it is a very French thing. Uh, after, I, I was watching it last night after the match, and I, I found it really amazing because this lead ultra was being listened to. The one question is, do the players really understand what's going on? I was looking at Ainsley Maitland-Niles. I don't think his French is really up to that level. He looked just completely lost. He'd been outplayed for an hour and a half, and suddenly he was getting a lecture in a language he didn't understand. He's not the only one who doesn't speak French in that side. So um, it, it was fascinating. I actually think it's quite a good thing. As long as it doesn't turn violent, it doesn't turn aggressive. The fans are the heart of the club. Uh, they've seen the club deteriorate for the last 20 years or 15 years and they're having their say and to be fair what they're saying is not wrong they do need leaders and they've got to stop this drain of talent out of Lyon well I think it, I think it's difficult for for the players but yeah sometimes I think a lot of fans seeing that around the world would be very happy to see that reaction from from the fans and also the players having to to answer to somebody else rather than just the the coach or some to have to answer to the supporters I remember back in the day at Paris Saint-Germain where after I can't remember which Champions League elimination it was, but uh, there was a, a training session at the Parc des Princes, which is already very rare. The ultras knew that it was on at the at the Parc des Princes, and they were hundreds of them outside the the stadium, demanding to be let in to to confront the the players. And in the end, the club said, "Okay, you can come in. You stand in this area of the of the pitch and watch." and uh, and they let the team, the team was doing their warm-up before training, running around, the, running around the ground. And the fans were just, didn't throw anything, but were abusing the Paris Saint-Germain players, saying essentially the same, the same words we heard last night from the capo, that they weren't honouring the jersey and that they hadn't been doing enough to, 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 to warrant their incredible salaries 
uh, and everything else. And I remember chatting to Edinson Cavani after the training. And he just, and Eddie was always one who always gave 100% and, and always, and was very knowledgeable about what the fans expect and deserve and, and has a very deep football culture. And he was really hurt by the fact that the fans were in there while they were trying to train and disrupting their training session and abusing them, like ferociously abusing them. So uh, it, it, it is an interesting one. It is an interesting one. But, you know, football on the continent is very political and that comes with its good and bad sides. It's not just in France. In Germany, this happens a lot in the Bundesliga, Bundesliga yeah. 2, all the way down. I mean, I remember Matt Hummels being given... An absolute grilling by uh, an ultra, as you say, in uh, the Signal Iduna Park when they, I think they'd lost to um, Bayern Munich one year. And it was, he, he was just there. He was nodding. He, it was almost like his boss was telling him and he was, he was taking it. And I think that this is something that you see. You don't just get sort of like the cameras circulating around the players whilst they give a polite piece of applause to their fans before leaving. Over in France and in Germany, you do get the feeling that they really do interact with the fans. They know that they're part of the club. And I think that the fans in those two countries particularly, they very much are part of the club. They're involved in the decision-making, as you say. And in Germany, they have somebody on the board from the fans as well. And it's a very different culture that you see in the Premier League. I do admire, Angus, your, your um, desperate attempt to railroad the next segment and uh, lead us somewhere else into into a discussion of German fan culture. But we are going to revisit your predictions of last season and uh, look forward to hearing your predictions for the coming campaign. So, so far, just to set the scene, we're going to ask Angus. We've already heard who he thinks will be relegated. And and, uh, for the moment, he um, has said Clermont and Nantes, which is exactly the same as myself and Andreas Evagora as well. But (laughs) Angus... You're already backtracking. I, no, I think no, you no, tried no, to backtrack exactly last week. Exactly the opposite. There was there was something wrong in an Excel <laughs> spreadsheet. Uh, going back to what Andy said at the start of the season, I thought oh, I thought he was much too was, negative about Nantes. Who I th- I think they they're not going to have a great season. But if you look at their side, they they have got some seasoned campaigners. They've got guys like Moses Simon, who's really underrated. Um, uh, Mohammed is surprised me because I didn't think he was that good. He's had an excellent season. So I've gone for Clermont and Metz. Mm. I, I don't want to get the same treatment as Angus okay. next year when when uh, when Nantes stay up. <laughs> and, don't uh, worry. Well, you, you can survive. If, if, if this uh, Excel sheet of predictions is worthless, then I'm <laughs> going to say I may well have predicted Nantes and Clermont to go down, but I hope Nantes don't because I, I don't think I can handle another big club going down. I mean, I know if they go down, they deserve it, but... Uh, they're they're a big club and it's good to have them and you know their stadium is a fantastic stadium the atmosphere was was electric again uh, at the weekend against Marseille Angus who do you think is yes. going to win the Ligue 1 Uber Eats title for the moment the, your predecessors including myself Andreas and Andy have all gone for one team who do you think it's going to be well I think that's easy now now that Kylian Mbappe is not leaving it's uh, Paris Saint-Germain isn't it and particularly as He's also managed to um, work the transfer window quite well, even though Lewis Campos probably is the person who is pulling the real strings there. And uh, he's brought in, you know, some players that he likes, likes playing with. The smile on his face last night when he scored that second goal, I think told you everything about the way he's feeling at the moment. And I think Paris Saint-Germain are back in a good place. And I think that, uh, yeah, I I think they're going to win. Angus, next up, Golden Boot. Now, you have just uh, spoken in glowing terms about Kylian Mbappe and his joy at being back on the football pitch. 
When we started, we weren't allowed to pick Killian, or well, you could, but no one did because it looked as though he was uh, not going to play or leaving. So I would encourage you in the in the the greater uh, Le Bourgeois sporting uh, spirit to uh, go with somebody else. What I will say is Jonathan Johnson, and this, JJ, obviously you're listening, so this is not just to turn the knife, but went with Gonzalo Ramos. Now, since Randall Colomwani has also arrived at the club, um, not sure Gonzalo is. Is he really going to get that much playing time to be uh, to be Golden Boot? Anyway, that's for another day. Angus, who do you think will win the Golden Boot or come second in the Golden Boot if we're not counting Killian? Right, if we're not going for Mbappe, then I am going to go for Wissam Ben Yedda because he's consistently been up there in the in the last few seasons. He finished top with uh, Mbappe one year and only lost out because of uh, technicalities. Uh, and even Mbappe said that he would share it with him. He started off fantastically this season. Monaco looked back to um, the, the the side we thought they were that was going to win the league a couple of uh, years ago when they were right up there until the end. Uh, until they got it all wrong on the last day. So I think Wissam Ben Yedda for me, if we have to not choose Mbappe. Okay, very good call. We haven't had him so far. There's Baptiste went with Amin Guiri. I went with uh, the suspended Alexandre Lacazette, but that side may struggle to score goals. Although, you know, traditionally, Leon do get penalties, as they did get against PSG. So maybe uh, Lacazette, the penalty taker. Eli Wai was Andreas's call. And I've got to say, his... Uh, his pace is really something else. Brilliant to watch. And Andy, you went with a certain Pierre Emerick Aubameyang, who for the moment didn't I? Didn't I go with Killian Mbappe? Huh? <laughs> no, I'm not. Well, we all went with Killian Mbappe. Well, exactly. I think. And I'm not even joking. I think I said that if 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 PSG keep Killian Mbappe, he's probably going to be the top scorer. So I think you know he's got five goals in three games. Exactly. Well, he is top scorer at Andy. the moment. Angus, your surprise packet. Now it could be good or bad. For example, we had. Laurent Blanc getting sacked early on this season. Lorient not impressing, barely surviving. Um, it could be a player. It could be, uh, you know, a, a club, a performance. What do you think is going to be the big surprise that we're going to raise our eyebrows at this season? Well, I'm, I'm going to go, I think, I think um, um, Andres said he was a little bit negative about Rance's chances this season. Uh, I might, don't think they'll be in the Champions League, but I really like Rance. Oh, I thought we were going to get another kiss of death there, Angus. Why? No. I, li- <laughs> I, th- I think Rance are, Rance are not going to make the Champions League. I'm not going to pretend that they are. But they are very, very good. Will still has been absolutely sensational uh, since he arrived. And unlike Didier Digard with Nice, who's no longer with them, he's kept it going to a large extent. And they are looking very, very good, very, very exciting. They've lost uh, Fanon in Balogun, and yet that doesn't seem to have stopped them at all at the beginning of this campaign. And I think he's created a really good base for them. Um, so unless they have some injuries, they, they, look, they look very good to watch. Fantastic. You're listening to Angus Turod, Andreas Evagora and Andy Scott on Le Bourgeois, the official Ligue 1 podcast on all your platforms uh, where you hear all your podcast action. Don't forget to subscribe so that it drops on your telephone, on your device, every episode, and uh, even give us a rating or a little forward onto your friends if you like. Now, Ligue 1 is known as the League of Talents, and this year on Le Bourgeois, our team of experts are bringing you in-depth player profiles of all the latest talents, whether they be emerging or just arriving into Europe or into France. 
we have already been treated to some stunning individual performances in the opening four rounds. We knew some were to be expected, others we suspected they could produce, and some have just been a real honest-to-goodness bolt from the blue, such as Montpellier's Musa Altamari. Angus Tarode, perhaps we should have been prepared for the lightning-quick, diminutive, left-footed score of spectacular goals now that Messi's gone because, after all, he is nicknamed the Middle Eastern Messi. Well, I defy anybody to, to say that they saw him coming, to be quite honest with you. I mean, um, judging even by people who know Asian football, he's very not very well known at all, even there. And he, even in Jordan, he's not really that well known either because he doesn't play for either of the, the two dominant teams that have sort of carved up the, uh, the league title more or less every year for the last three or four decades. So... I think that uh, somebody along the line there has done an enormously brilliant piece of scouting. Uh, they obviously saw something that uh, not many other people did. And as you say, he's come in, he's quick, he's a good finisher. He's come in with confidence. Obviously, they're doing something right to suit his level of play. And he's got off to a, a great start, albeit yesterday he was, um, he was muted yesterday. So they ended up bringing him off after about 70 minutes. But he's not going to score in every game. And he seems to be a finisher and a creator, which for Montpellier is fantastic uh, with Teji Savanier in there too. Yeah, I've, I've heard a, a little bit about him. He, he had an excellent uh, continental campaign in Jordan, um, which is where he really, really burst onto the scene. But I've also heard that he has a, 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 a special pre-match meal yes. that he likes to have uh, every, every time. And perhaps... Uh, that's the secret I even heard suggested by one uh, Asian football expert, Paul Williams, who I was chatting to this week. Well, let's face it, he's obviously a Popeye fan, so um, he has the tortoise epinard, doesn't he? The, uh, the spinach pie, apparently, uh, with the national side, at least, when he's playing for Jordan the night before. So, um, to be honest with you, he's come to the land of cuisines, of cooking, so with any luck, maybe that's exactly what the, the Montpellier chefs are doing at the moment. They're giving him his favourite... Uh, burst of home and he's answering them with a really flying start so he's been he's been he's been really really good it's been it's been a pleasure to watch him to be honest with you angus we've seen the spanish influence in in recent years in french football we've got a few japanese players four at the moment playing in playing in the top flight we've had the japanese influence across europe uh we've got a, a korean playing at paris saint germain these days these days it, could a musa altamari be be a player that could spark a sort of Jordanian influx of players onto the, the European scene or into France? I mean, we haven't seen it with Qatari ownership of, of Paris Saint-Germain, but, but surely with, with the money in Saudi Arabia now, with the money in Qatar, with footballers developing all over the world, I mean, why not bring in a couple of Jordanian strikers? We've seen certainly in Musa Altamari, the skill, the speed, the the courage is there. Well, it would take an ambitious club, I think, to set up a scouting operation in Jordan. I mean, it's a relatively small pool. I mean, you were mentioning those uh, Middle Eastern uh, countries and very few Jordanians even go and play in those countries. So if they're not finding the talent in Jordan, then maybe there isn't that much. But I mean, you never know. I mean, I, he, apparently he doesn't like being called the uh, the Jordanian Messi, but I mean, I would have thought that's, uh, that's probably quite a flattering thing to have named with you. But you know, I, I think that, you know, you have to be a little bit um, realistic. There is there is talent everywhere in the world. So, I mean, if you do it in Jordan, then why not do it in Oman? Why not do it in Iraq, Iran? Uh, why not do it in Singapore? I mean, it, the, the, the reach you would need is, um, 
is expensive. Um, so I haven't heard anything yet to suggest that there is somebody else that would be able to hold their own in France from Jordan. But yeah, like you say, you can never really rule it out. That would be unfair on anybody who's trying to get into their dream of playing in the top five or maybe even top six leagues now. Well, that 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 is a moot point, Angus Tarot, mm. that you make. But I was looking in. We 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 have a WhatsApp group where where Andreas was uh, pointing out that France has been dropped in the the UEFA coefficient down to sixth. I went back and had a little look. Between 2011 and 2016, France was sixth as well, behind Portugal in the top five leagues. So that's less than a decade ago. It's only been the last five years France has officially been one of the top five leagues, and it's not Portugal anymore. They're, they're down below. And uh, looking at the rise of the Netherlands, it's been uh, quite emphatic as well because they are now the fifth-ranked country in uh, European football, according to the UEFA coefficient. Last Friday, the transfer window slammed shut, but not before a number of big moves, both in and away from Ligue 1, leading the way, and perhaps it was to be expected, were Paris Saint-Germain with another new-look squad, and uh, perhaps the departures are not finished yet as well, with PSG's loft still looking uh, to get rid of a few extra bodies, the likes of Marco Verratti and Julian Draxler are the latest to be linked to Qatari football as well. Their window doesn't shut for another couple of weeks yet. That also goes for the Saudi League, um, which raised a few eyebrows as well. Their, their, their transfer window still open. But we did hear from a couple that had departed. Lionel Messi and uh, Neymar Jr. were making the press in the last couple of days as well in the media, Neymar saying that earning tens of millions of euros to be a footballer in a city like Paris was like living in hell. Well, I don't know how much uh, weak as mere mortals can relate to, uh, certainly I wasn't taught that that was the image of hell when I was at school. Um, not that I was necessarily paying that much attention. <laughs> but the thing is, Robbie, like some, sometimes Paris is magnificent, sometimes it is fairly hellish, you know? I mean, I say this as somebody's just started drilling about <laughs> one metre away from me now through the wall somewhere, you know. If, if, if you want, maybe just wanted a bit of peace and quiet and they realised that Paris was not the, the right place for that, so. Every, every, hell is relative, isn't it? Hell is. Remember, I guess hell, once, hell you, is once other you people, accept yeah, that hell remember? is relative, hell is, hell is other, other people. people. Hell that's is other the, people. Pa- Paris is the most densely populated city in Europe, so I think they just realised that they wanted to be somewhere where there's a bit more space. So Neymar's gone to the desert and uh, he hopefully find a bit more space. When I, when I read that, Robbie, I did have the obvious reaction, like, come on, there, there, there's economic problems and inflation and all that. But then, actually, I thought, Neymar should know better. This was a kid at 11 years old was selling matches and drinks in the street. You know, he, he knows what it's like to be poor. And I, I, I was disappointed when I heard him say that. I mean, whether he did say it was one of, one of his agents or whatever or, or people, but that, that's going to leave a bit of taste in a lot of people's mouths. Yeah, well, already Lionel Messi's uh, declarations in Miami left a bitter taste in the mouth mouth as well, saying, I never wanted to go to Paris Saint-Germain in the first place. I mean, please, guys, you have to have a little bit of respect for, for your own job and your own signature. You signed contracts. You're, I mean, but anyway, it's crazy. We won't go there again. I'm going to take the Paris Saint-Germain approach, which was we don't comment on players of other clubs. We don't, uh, we're a club with a certain elegance in our communication and uh, won't be telling tales like that. I'll follow that lead. 
Paris Saint-Germain were, however, big players in the transfer market with ins and outs. Rennes also did some big business, turning a very tidy profit, as did Lorient, Montpellier and Lyon. All big profits in excess of 25, 30 million euros coming in during this transfer window. But cash isn't necessarily the answer because, as we've seen with Lyon and Lens at the moment, it's all about how you spend it. Lens, Lille, Reims and Toulouse also all finished the transfer window in the black. Um, Angus, yes. we're heading to you first. The best bit of transfer business. Who caught your eye? Or it could be a player. It could be a, a an ethos. It could be a coach. It could be a... A restructuring program. What what caught your eye in this transfer window? Ishmael Assar, hands down. I thought that that I, I'm amazed that Premier League clubs had not come in for him. Bearing in mind he was in the Premier League, he did well in the Premier League, and then when Watford were relegated, nobody came in for him. And I think Marseille have absolutely um, not discovered a jewel, but they have rediscovered a jewel. He's all, I, I did their game last week. He was fantastic in it. Everything that was good that Marseille did went through him, setting up chances, taking shots himself. He looked like a man unleashed on Liga, and I think he's going to be fantastic. And I think the addition of Armin Harrit as well, coming in from, uh, um, from Schalke, which I also think is a bit of a, a jewel that's been unearthed from a coal mine, if you'll excuse the pun. Um, him and uh, Ismail Assar, I think are going to be nothing short of sensational this season. Andreas, best bit of transfer business in this uh, European summer. It was an interesting one. I, I had a very strange experience on Friday night at midnight. On the stroke of midnight, I, just by chance, I happened to be leaving the building where PSG's headquarters are. And it's the closest I'll ever come to adulation of, of a footballer or actually any kind of adulation. Because as I was leaving, there was this huge cheer and, and, and I was getting like high fives and pats on the back because they thought I had something to do with Randall Colomani, I suspect. But it was fantastic. It really it was a, gave me a real buzz, actually. Uh, I, I, I agree with Angus. I think Sar's been a fantastic buy. Uh, I think, like all of us, very impressed with Manuel Ugarte uh, and, and the, the goal, the, pen, the penalty that he won last night is a good example of that because I don't think anyone was expecting him to be the most forward player. He was doing the pressing and Talisa got the shock of his life and, and gave away a penalty. So really impressed with him. Um, I, th I think I haven't been generous enough about Monaco. So Wilfred Singer, I think, has been impressive so far, early days. But he's uh, another one. And I have to say Eli Wahi because, you know, I've tipped him to score a bunch of goals. So they're the ones uh, that I think were good business for the respective buyers. By the way, Andres, just to, um, uh, to, to fill you in on that uh, bit where you were coming out of the building, the guy who runs our local bar is one of the ultras in the Otoy, <laughs> and he was actually one of those outside that building, and he actually got a photo with uh, Kolomoani at 1am in the morning when he finally came out. I thought you were going to say he got a photo with Andreas Evagora. <laughs> <laughs> After a particularly seen good it. commentary. <laughs> I will just, uh, so just to clarify, um, Andreas was commentating for the World Feed at BN Sports headquarters, which are in the, the, the upper floors of, of this building, and Paris Saint-Germain occupy the lower floors of the, of the same building. So that's what Andreas was there walking around PSG headquarters at midnight on a, on a Friday night. Andy Scott, 
for you. Oh, I just one more thing on Ali Wai. I'm 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 loath to be one of those I told you so guys. But if we go back in Le Bourgeois about two and a half seasons ago, Ali Wai was one of my predictions. Now I was probably about a year too far ahead of myself, but one of my players to watch in uh in a in a coming season was Ellie Wahi, but I think it was two and a half years ago now. Andy, there you go. How do you like that? Tough act to follow, Andy. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, always, I, always, think, um, I always think, Robbie, of, of you tipping Bull Idea for the top as well. So you, you, got, you got him yeah. right um, as well. I mean, obviously, what Andreas is really doing at, at, the, at the factory where the PSG offices are is, is he, was, he was doing his job as an investigative journalist. He was hanging around himself, uh, burrowing his way through the offices, looking for a, a sign of Rondal Colomwani. I was working myself on Friday evening, desperately wanting PSG to announce the signing of Colomwani, and I'd just about given up for the night because it was 12.30, half an hour after the window had shut, and then suddenly the statement drops from PSG confirming that they'd signed him. Uh, I I would agree with Andres but Manuel Ugarte. I think that's a really. I think if you're talking about high end transfer moves, I think it was an area that PSG needed to strengthen, um, and it looks very good. The early days of of, of Ugarte looked very promising. I think it depends when you ask for the best piece of transfer business. I think it kind of depends what you mean by that. I mean, I would suggest that Ren getting sixty million euros for Jeremy Doku is very good business because, um, now I think Doku has tremendous potential. I think nowadays a lot of clubs pay for the potential. You don't tend to pay top dollar for a, for a player who's already in their prime or whatever. But uh, I, think he, I think he is clearly a, a very exciting footballer, but he hasn't done a huge amount at Ren. didn't do a huge amount at Ren, and to get 60 million for him is, is very good business. I think, too, when, when I saw this question, I, I noted down two names in block capitals based on what I've seen from, in the, in, from them in the early weeks of the season. One is Teddy Tuma at Rans because he had never played uh, league on football before. And um, he's had a tremendous start to his to his Rance career. He's been brilliant for them. Absolutely tremendous goal uh, last weekend in Montpellier. One of two he got in that match. And, and he's a really interesting signing. Maltese international who was playing in the Belgian league last season for Union Saint-Gilloise. Before that, he was at Red Star in the lower leagues in France. Um, so he's really interesting. And could be, a, could be a really good signing for a really interesting team this season. The other one I wanted to mention was Dallar Kuziaev at Le Havre because um, he's obviously come from the Russian Premier League, which is... Uh, a league that has been ostracised because of the, the war in Ukraine. Um, he left Zenit St. Petersburg, who have been a, the dominant club in Russia for a number of years. He was an important player for them, and he's come into Lav and looks looks very useful. He's playing sort of a very attacking midfield role and has scored a couple of goals already. So, Dalar Kuziaya, if, if Lav are going to stay up, um, I think he's going to have a very big part to play. So, look out for him as well. He was asked, Andy, what he misses uh, about Russia, and he couldn't but say, I miss my pelmenis and my, my Russian dumplings and the Russian food. So, you know, you can't please everyone. Most most players would love to go to France and eat some some cordon bleu or some, you know, some boeuf bourguignon, some some famous coq au vin. I would say, though, Robbie, that, um, you know, Le Havre is a very – it's a place that I like. I, I, I must say I'm going to defend it um, to the last, but I'm not sure it wins a beauty contest with St. Petersburg. So, you know <laughs> – the, there is there is that side of it as well, but yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's gonna he's gonna enjoy being in Lavra. I think it's, a, it's got a lovely beach. As long as the weather holds up, then um, you know he could he could top up that time. Well, he scored that competition though is better than it used to be because Le Havre used to be absolutely horrible. When I first went there, we were going there for a, for a day out, and we ended up taking a train to Rouen. Now it's actually really perked up. It's got a wonderful stadium, 
and the, the the town has been spruced up, and it's a nice place to go. It's not only about the football stadium, Angus. And as far as I'm no. aware, the as far as I'm aware, the beach has always been there. So you know, yes, but but things. Angus, it it raises a, an interesting point for our for our socio socio economic podcast that we're also going to be running uh, sporadically this season. We're going to have a number of spin-offs if you if you believe all the rumours about the Le Bourgeois podcast this season, but. Luave is traditionally a very tough town as well, going back, uh, and the likes of Suleiman Diawar and Mamadou Nyong both grew up in the same HLM, which uh, in French is like a housing commission tower. And there were many, many great footballers that came out of um, very uh, underprivileged quarters in, in Luave over the years. And of course, the Mondonda family are another um, family of goalkeepers who have come out of Luav. Um, Paul Pogba, I think, was Parisian, but also finished his youth academy training at Luav. They're a famous old club. I went and did a little bit of research because we were chatting about them last week. They, um, they have, I think it's 1872 on their, on their jerseys from when they were, they were one of the very first amateur champions of French football way back uh, when the league was really just starting out and dominated by Parisian clubs that don't exist anymore, and Luave were there as one of the uh, one of the clubs mixing it with it. So uh, we'll have to have a deep dive into Luave one of these days and hope that uh, if they're going to go down at the end of the season, Do you know why they've got why they wear blue, Robbie? Is it going to be well? They're an athletic club, aren't they? Is it something to do with England? It, yeah, exactly. You're close there because <laughs> it represents the blue of Oxford and Cambridge University. Ah, there you go. That's the link yep. with England, yeah. They do have their, their, their double blues, Sky, Sky and uh, oh. Royal Lizard, or is it Navy? Probably Navy, Navy these blue, days. Yeah. In recent seasons, we have seen a number of French footballing institutions fall from grace. The likes of Bordeaux and Saint-Étienne, most spectacularly in recent years. Modern football can be cruel and cares little for an historic past, a romantic stadium, or nostalgic memories. Olympic Lyonnais are finding that out the hard way. They are bottom of the league for the first time since 1983. It is their worst ever start to a Ligue 1 season. And uh, now on Le Bourgeois, I suggest we tear our gaze away from that interminable descent and jump into our Ligue 1 time machine with Professor Andreas Evagora. He's fired up the flux capacitor and pointed his DeLorean back to 2002 when Olympic Lyonnais were at the ambitious upstarts looking to make their mark and etch their names into the history books. It's the 11th of May, 2008. Stade Gerlon, Lyon have beaten Nancy and are celebrating yet another league triumph. Top since October, they've never looked back. An exciting attack of Karim Benzema, Atom Ben Arfa and Sidney Govu leaving the league in its wake. Lyon have marched to a seventh consecutive league title, a record that stands to this day. Yet 20 years earlier, the club was a second division also ran. Here's the story of how Lyon went from laughing stock to league domination. 21 years earlier, the 15th of June, 1987, TF1 Television Studios in Paris. Renowned businessman and politician Bernard Tappy is hosting a popular business program called Ambition. Tappy is quizzed about his acquisition of Olympic Marseille. He's asked, could anyone make a success of struggling Olympic Lyonnais? 
the club from France's third biggest city had never come close to winning the league and was floundering near the bottom of the second division. Without hesitation, Tappy answers, yes, a young industrialist named Jean-Michel Aulas. There's bewilderment in the studio. Few have heard of Aulas. Those who have know he's made a fortune selling accounting software, hardly a groundwork for top-flight football. But that summer, Aulas becomes club president and builds the most successful dynasty in the history of French football. 13 years later, May 2000. Lyon back in the first division, and they finished third in the last two campaigns. But coach Bernard Lacombe has had enough of management after four successful seasons. Olas is home. He's wondering who can lead the club forward over the next four years. After lunch, he sits down to watch some Formula One on television. His interest is raised when a commentator explains Ferrari's dominance of the sport. It's true they've got great drivers, says the Formula One expert. But this team, it's so well organized from top to bottom, almost any good driver could come in and the team would still dominate. That makes Olas think, what can work for F1 can surely work at Lyon. Build a top-class structure with an outstanding youth academy and scouting network, and any coach could arrive and thrive. Olas puts his plan into action. He persuades his old friend Lacombe to stay on as sporting director. Jose Boissard is in charge of youth development. Former French international Joël Batz is hired as goalkeeping coach. Robert Duverne takes care of physical preparation. And Oles has an ace up his sleeve, the former player Marcelo Kiramidjian, hired to scout in Brazil. One year later, June 2001, coach Jacques Santini has guided Lyon to the runners-up spot in Liga. 1. Oles and his management team discuss new players who could turn second place into first. From Brazil, Marcelo is urging the club to sign a midfielder, Vasco da Gama. The staff is initially sceptical. The player's already 26. Why has he never been picked up by a big European club? The Frenchman struggled to pronounce the Brazilian's name. How good is this lad, Pernambucano? Trust me, says Marcelo, and just call him Juninho. The 28th of July, 2001, is the opening day of the new season, Lens versus Lyon. The early signs anything but promising. Within 20 minutes, Lyon have conceded two against a team that's narrowly escaped relegation. Steve Marley and expensive new signing Frederic Ney are making no impact. Brazilian Juninho seems lost. It ends 2-0, but that would prove to be a mere blip. Marley and Ney are sidelined. Brazilian star Sonny Anderson proving to be a regular scorer. Juninho would be the buy of the season. Eric Carrier arrives from Nantes to bring Kraft to the midfield. Keeper Gregory Coupe was called up by the national team for the first time. And there were the unsung heroes like defender Patrick Muller and midfielder Philippe Violot. By mid-November, Lyon had climbed to second place where, remarkably, they would stay until the very last match of the campaign. The 4th of May, 2002. It's the last day of the season, second against first at the Stade Gerland. By a twist of fate, Lyon again against the Lens team, who've been top of the table for 28 of 34 match days. The gap is just one point, so for the first time, there's an effective final to decide the title. A huge and emotional day. The club can't satisfy the 200,000 requests for tickets. They'll build a giant screen in the city centre. Ahead of the game, the heavens open. While the driving rain does nothing to dampen the atmosphere, it plays a role on a night of soft goals. Early on, a speculative shot from Govu bobbles past the keeper, Guillaume Varmuz. 
Lyon quickly make it 2-0 when a scuffed shot from Vilo is palmed into the net by Varmuz. Jacek back had just quit Lyon for Lons. The pole pulled one back. That made it 2-1 at half-time. Then the irrepressible Juninho skips past three tackles, plays a perfect pass to Legler. His shot takes a huge deflection. It loops high over the stranded Varmuz. The crowd hold its breath. The ball falls under the bar. 3-1. Lyon champions for the first time. 2002 was just the start. Olas had the foundations of the dynasty he so craved. Seven consecutive titles would follow, a record that's never been matched. Nearly 20 years on, Lyon now bottom of the league table. They're in crisis. Their domination in the noughties almost unbelievable. Between 2005 and 07, they won the league by a staggering 12, 15 and 17 points. The football was positive and exciting. They scored 74 goals in 07-08, a season when they claimed the double for the first time. Remembering the lesson of F1, Olas insisted that no coach became bigger than the club. Seven titles won under four different coaches. Jacques Santini, Paul Le Guin, Gerard Houillet and Alain Perrin. Lyon's Youth Academy became the envy of Europe. Among the fans celebrating on that wild night in 2002, 14-year-old local boy Karim Benzema, the future Real Madrid star, the most famous graduate of a hugely successful setup that produced the likes of Hatem Ben Arfa, Loic Remy, Samuel Umtiti, Frederic Canute, Alexandre Lacazette and Sidney Govu. Olas did whatever it took to attract the best to Lyon. Ben Arfa, a case in point. In 2002, clubs around Europe swirled around the teenage sensation. Olas ordered his chauffeur to drive him to Ben Arfa's flat near Paris. On the spot, Olas convinced Ben Arfa and his parents that Lyon was the place to be. Olas was determined, hungry, often self-centred, characteristics of many other club presidents. But he was different and a true visionary, a highly successful one at that. Lyon became the first club to build and own its own stadium, a move which quadrupled match day receipts. The first to go on the stock market, the first to be serious about women's football. Olas's legacy second to none. Crucially, talent kept arriving from Marcelo in Brazil. Lyon's list of Brazilians includes Anderson, Edmilson, Claudio Casapa, Chris, and Bruno Guimarães. But the undoubted jewel in the crown was Juninho, a superbly gifted passer of a football. The Lyon number eight had work rate, character, and an eye for goal. He scored 100 in all competitions for Lyon. But of course, he's best known for his free kicks, scoring no fewer than 42 for Lyon. Perhaps no player in the history of the game has been able to make a football move, swerve, and dip quite like Juninho. In his career, he scored what's generally regarded as a world record 77 goals direct from free kicks. More than Ronaldinho, Beckham, and even Pele. The arrival of Juninho in 2001, the catalyst for a remarkable era of Lyon domination. Thank you, Professor Andreas Evagora. Yes, that Olympic Lyonnais side, well, building up, as you say, over the years under Olas and then those seven years. I remember being a football journalist in France and at the start of every season, just you just were expecting Olympic Lyonnais to win and just by how many points, by how many games would they would they win the league by? Um, so many fantastic players and not only the, the big stars, they, they like you say, they, they knew how to bring in great players all over the park. There were the Essians, the Abidals, Mohamedou Diara, players that went on to win big things elsewhere afterwards as well. I always loved the striker Fred 
when he arrived because that was such an un-Brazilian name for a for a player and and he was such a brilliant striker who really didn't didn't live up to everything he could have achieved I guess Fred uh, and there was a Nilmar another little Brazilian but Angus what what are your memories of of that period and a certain Juninho. Well, I, 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 I definitely the, the free kicks were just unbelievable. It was just like he couldn't miss. There was a period where basically, if if Leon got a free kick, it was a goal. It, it was it was that um, that obvious, and it got to the point where defenders of opposing sides were terrified to make any challenges outside the box because of the fact that it was almost like handing Leon a penalty, and uh, it was fantastic. And of course, their greatest moments of Leon if you go beyond that, is that he was definitely central to everything. All of those 14 titles over those eight glorious seasons that uh, they had, you know, starting with the Coupe de la Liga um, Cup, I seem to remember, first off, before they got the uh, the first of their seven uh, Ligue 1 titles. Paul Le Guen came in and he absolutely, he, he went absolutely over the top again over Jack Santini, who left and then later became the France coach. And Paul Le Guen was, he was at the height of his powers when he was in charge of Lyon. Just one, one last word, um, Robbie. Remember two weeks ago, we, we looked at Lens and, and that success just seemed to come like, like just the stars aligning almost by chance. This was completely different, I think. It was a long-term plan uh, conducted by a businessman and it ended up with long-term success. So two very contrasting stories, I thought. Absolutely. And I just, I've just remembered who the, the, the preferred victim of Juninho was for those free kicks, I think. It was the Ajaxio goalkeeper. I think it was Penito. Or, or, or something like that. Nicola Pento, maybe, who, who conceded. And there was one, one free kick where literally Juninho was nearly in the center circle when he hit it. And you think, my God, that must be terrible goalkeeping. It wasn't. It was unsavable from fully 40 meters out, out from goal. Incredible, incredible period for French football, incredible period for Olympic Lyonnais. And it only makes, you know, the bigger you are, the harder you fall. And I think that's what Olympic Lyonnais fans uh, falling from a great height at the moment, and um, it hurts, even if they have been falling for a while. Andy, do you want to add anything to the Olympic Lyonnais saga, or should we keep moving? No, I mean, you know, just just that it was, um, it, it, from a personal viewpoint, I actually arrived in France, moved here on the night that they beat PSG in the in the cup final in May 2008 to complete the double. And um, of course, they've they've hardly won anything since. So perhaps <laughs> their fall from grace is all my fault. Well, there you go, Olympic Lyonnais fans. Don't look to your your overpaid, lazy footballers. The uh, the reason for your fall from grace is right here on Le Bourgeois. So send us an email, follow us, get uh, make the podcast popular. We've found your victim. Well, now it's time for our. Regular quiz. Welcome back to uh, French football's hardest quiz, I think you'd probably have to say. You have the chance to win a Ligue 1 Uber Eats jersey each and every month of the season by just using your in-depth knowledge of Le Beaujeu Française. All you have to do is put together all the clues and figure out who I am talking about. But before I give you the latest clue. I'm pleased to announce that we have our first winner of the new season. The first Deja Vu answer of this season we were looking for was Julian Draxler. He scored in his first game with PSG in the Coupe de France, his first Ligue 1 match, his first Classique against Marseille, and his first Champions League match with Paris Saint-Germain as well. It was a certain 4-0 win over Barcelona 
in the Champions League, unfortunately. Uh, much like for PSG in that campaign and for Julian Draxler, it uh, ended up being rather downhill from there, but an immensely talented footballer. The second answer from uh, our cryptic clues two weeks ago was, of course, An Jung Hwan, the Korean striker who scored the golden goal winner in the World Cup in 2002's quarterfinal against Italy, only for his Perugia club president, Luciano Gauci, to sack him for the affront to the nation, having eliminated the Azzurri from the World Cup. He spent a largely forgettable season with FC Mets, did An Jung Hwan, but he did score with his very first touch against Paris Saint-Germain. It was one of only two goals he scored in 16 league appearances for Mess. Our winner of the first jersey of the new season is Sean Patrick. Congratulations, Sean. Producer Stephen will be in touch. So, as a reminder, Deja Who covers French and foreign footballers who have applied their trade in Ligue 1. Uber Eats at some point in their careers, illustrious or obscure, and uh, today, I think it's a little more on the illustrious side of things. That in itself is a bit of a clue, I guess. Who am I? I hope you are all paying attention. I moved to France with a burgeoning reputation, having already fired my former club to continental success. In my first season, and with the first of my two clubs in Ligue 1, I finished second in the league and was named best foreign player in the top flight. Unfortunately, it was as close as I would get to silverware in eight seasons in the hexagon. While club success may have eluded me, my time in France did coincide with an historic period for my national team, for which I shone on the biggest stage of all. Of the nearly 200 games and over 40 goals I scored in France, it was my very last match, which is doubtless the most famous and for all the wrong reasons. Who am I and what was my last match in Ligue 1? So there you go. Hopefully that's another tough one. Any ideas, gentlemen? A few vacant stares? Not e- certainly not easy being thrown in at the deep end like that. I think I'll listen to the podcast again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very good. Listen, take notes. And uh, if you think you know who it could be, any idea at all, send your answers in to League One Podcast. That's L-I-G-U-E, League, as in French League. League One Podcast at gmail.com. And you can go into the running for a Ligue 1 Uber Eats jersey to be announced. Not the next pod, but the pod after that. There'll be one more clue or a new player to uh, go into the running for in the next podcast. But remember, you need to answer all the questions as much as you can to go into the running for the greatest prize available to French football fans. So that's how you can stay involved in that quiz also in chatting to us in the podcast as well. If you have any questions or just want to get involved in the conversation, league1podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at league1 underscore ENG. League1.com is the official website and you can catch us on all podcast platforms. Now, there was some bad news for French clubs this week with the UEFA coefficient announcing that France has indeed dropped to sixth place. We were chatting about that earlier just behind the Netherlands. 
but some good performances on the continent over the next few months, and they should be able to wrestle back that illustrious top five status. However, there is no denying European performances have been underwhelming in recent times, but we have a fresh season. You can feel the expectation, the excitement building. Those big European nights are really what football is all about. So let's cast our eye over the lay of the land for our Ligue 1 clubs. We'll start in the Champions League in Group B, where Lens, who finished second last year in Ligue 1, have been drawn with Seville, Arsenal and PSV Eindhoven. Andreas, give us your opinion of Lens and Group B. It's a tough game, obviously. There are a couple of clubs you know very well there. And uh, from what we've seen so far from Lens this season, while uh, some of our podcast panellists believe that improvement is only just around the corner, it better be. Otherwise, this could be a very long campaign. Yeah, it could be. I think we need to be clear about what the coefficient is. It it doesn't measure the strength of a league. It, it mentions it, it, it's a reference to how good you are in Europe, which isn't exactly the same thing. What I mean by that is I think if you've got, say, the 12th best team in France and the 12th best team in Portugal or the Netherlands, I think... I think the French team would win. But the problem is they're just not performing in Europe. And this coefficient is it's, it's very mathematical and objective look at how you do in Europe. So French teams really have to do better than they have in the past. But getting back to your question, uh, I think it's... Well, yeah. just on yeah, that point then, yes. I think I agree with you on your, on your point about the, the strength and depth of the league as well. And I think it's a very, probably one of the toughest leagues in all of Europe. But that coefficient does decide who goes in to play European football next year. And that's where these underwhelming performances, I called it in the intro, have been hurting French clubs. Because as you see, we saw it again, we've seen it in the past with Monaco in recent seasons, Marseille failing to qualify for the Champions League because they've got big playoff games in the month of August, in in the end of July. And, And it's not easy for, it would be great to be able to have a third club straight into the group stage. That's what the coefficient does offer you. Oh, but that's very, the point. But, but at the same time, yeah, sorry. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, they, they're crucially important. Uh, sorry, Angus, go ahead. Sorry, I, I was just going to say that, that whilst we've been saying that they are, they've struggled down to six, that hasn't stopped the fact that there's an extra Champions League place that has come into Liga this season um, for next season. So now you've got, um, you've got uh, four clubs who can qualify, three of which will go into the Champions League. And surely at some point, down the road, which is what this coefficient always seems to be predicting in one sense, that's going to help because now all of a sudden you've got three sides. So Monaco, who failed twice, Marseille, who failed last this time, the one who finishes third this time will go straight into the um, the, the, the Champions League. So this is a big, big season for French clubs. You're right, but it is an expanded Champions League next year. This is the last year of the Champions League, we shouldn't forget. It's going to go to that huge Swiss-style system. So... In a way, Marseille not being in the Champions League will help because you get just as many points to win a game in the in the Europa League as you do in the Champions League. The club doesn't, but the country does. But anyway, that's a roundabout way of getting back to, to long. Group B, Group B, Andres. I think it's a much closer group. I saw some kind of silly things on the internet saying, oh, it's a Europa League. Uh, it's a Europa League uh, quality group with PSV, Lons and Sevilla and Arsenal. I, I don't agree with that. Uh, Lons do have to start very well. One thing I would say was I have... Uh, experienced Champions League nights uh, at PSV and at Lens. I'm showing my age. I did see Lens play Arsenal a long time ago in 1998. Two really good atmospheres and I think away wins will be at a premium. Eindhoven is a really hard place to go. It's a really tough 
city. It's a nice stadium. Uh, I think it's going to be closer than people think. Sevilla are certainly in the Europa League. Uh, they've been almost unstoppable in recent years. I, I think Sevilla will go through. Uh, I just think it's going to be a fairly close group. And I think Lons need to win uh, those home games. If they come third, I don't think that's a disaster because, you know, maybe they could do something in the Europa League. But I think that's quite an, e- an even group. That's what I'm getting at. There's another very even group in uh, involving a French club in the Champions League as well. But it certainly wouldn't ever have been called Europa League standard. This is elite Champions League level Group F. Paris Saint-Germain, Borussia Dortmund, AC Milan and Newcastle United. Perhaps uh, the, the new kids on the block, but certainly uh, a club making waves and catching the headlines as well. It was immediately... Uh, monikered the group of death, Andy, but Luis Enrique in the, his press conference before the Leon game uh, said this was the most exciting Champions League group we have. What do you make of Group F? Well, the first thing I would say is that I, I have an editor at uh, AFP, the news agency where I work, who absolutely outlaws the use of the term group of death. And I tend to agree with him because it is a fairly, uh, you know, what does it even mean? I mean, this is, this, is a, this is a group that catches the imagination. It's a proper Champions League group in a sense. Uh, you've got a team from each of the four. Um, ma- well, e- each each team comes from what you would consider to be a major European league. Um, but I think from PSG viewpoint, I think really they should be okay. And I think that um, the other three teams might be left to fight amongst themselves. Of course, they've got some very difficult, um, very exciting but difficult away games in there. But I would I would fancy them to get 11 points, you know, 11, 12 points in that group, and that should be enough to take them through. So I wouldn't be worried about PSG. Um, as long as they perform to anywhere close to their potential, I think they'll be fine. That's it for our two Champions League uh, participants from Ligue 1. In the Europa League, Group B, Ajax, Marseille, Brighton and Hove Albion and AK Athens. Angus, to me, that looks like a tough group as well. Ajax, we know they've got a very good Georgian striker that they've just picked up from, from French football in Mikotadze from, from Metz. AEK Athens, we know what the atmosphere is going to be like there, even though I believe that there's a, a strong link between uh, the supporters of the two clubs, Marseille and AEK Athens. And then Brighton and Hove Albion, who are a side that are emerging in recent seasons as well. How do you see this one going? Well, they can't have been very happy then that they went out in Champions League qualifying to Panathinaikos then, if um, that's the case. So uh, it, I think Marseille... They got stunned, I think, in, in Champions League there. Let's not forget, they were only knocked out right at the end they on penalties it was very unfortunate they weren't happy with a number of things to do with the game and i think that um, they're a, they're a club that will potentially be a lot bigger than that i think when it gets to the the europa league i think that again i fancy them to go through i think that ajax will be a problem i think that brighton cannot be trusted i think they are a, they're a team that are consistently punching above their their weight they're sort of they're like Lons, in a sense, from that point of view, before Lons lost Seiko Fafana. You know, they, they, they're a team that has built well, a bit like Olas we were talking about earlier. They've set their stall out. They've, they've created a really good structure. It's a really well-run club. It's well-financed. And they have a stream of talent that seems to come up every season through there. Uh, they, they find good coaches, which come through as well. They've got one at the moment. They're, they're, they're beating teams that maybe they shouldn't be beating who are bigger than them, spend more money. So uh, I'm a little bit suspicious of them. I think it's going to be a fascinating 
um, a fascinating group. But it's, uh, I, I don't think that Marseille are a shoo-in to get through, but I would say that I would be surprised if they didn't. Andreas, keep going in the UEFA Europa League. Group E, Liverpool, and then Linza or Lask from Austria, Union Saint-Gilloise, and Le Tifisi, Toulouse Football Club. Their courtesy of their Coupe de France victory last year, the side that just 18 months ago were playing in the French second division. Here they are taking on Liverpool in the Europa League. What do you make of this one? Yeah, I, I think that's an, I think we have to say Liverpool are the big favourites. I don't know if Liverpool are going to send the, the first choice side, but I mean, even if they don't, I, I mean, they're going to go through. But this goes back to what I'm saying. Look, nothing at all against the uh, Union and Lask. Both of those teams finished third in their respective leagues in Belgium and Austria. French teams have got to be beating the team, the third best teams in Belgium and Austria, or else they really can't complain about this, this UEFA co- coefficient. I'm quite impressed with Carlos Novella at Toulouse. He seems to you know, be a good tactician. He's quite new to, to top-level club management, but Toulouse have done pretty well. Uh, I think they'll get through, and I, I really think France needs Toulouse to get through from that, from that kind of group, if you know what I mean. That, that they should be beating Union and Lask over six matches. Andy, in the, the Europa League, Group F, Villarreal, Rennes, Maccabi, Haifa, and the aforementioned famous Panathinaikos, the Greek side that knocked Marseille out of the Champions League running before getting knocked out themselves in the next round. How do you see Rennes getting on here? Well, on the face of it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like um, as tough a group as Marseille's, for example, but I think, actually, there's a lot of pedigree in there. I mean, Villarreal are a club who won the Europa League themselves uh, just a couple of years ago. They've undergone a lot of changes since then, but you know they're a they're a, a very good Spanish team, and good Spanish teams tend to go far in the Europa League. The other sides in that group, uh, Maccabi Haifa, were in the Champions League last season. Of course, uh, PSG gave them a couple of heavy beatings. They didn't do very well in that competition. They lost to young boys in the playoffs to get into the Champions League this year. So they dropped out of that. Panathinaikos obviously did for Marseille. And then and then dropped out um, in the playoffs of the Champions League against Braga. So it's it's a group with plenty of pedigree. But I think in terms of Rennes' budget, in terms of their ambitions, they need to be getting through a group like that. And and they should. But you know it comes kind of comes down to what we talked a lot about about French clubs disappointing too often in European competition in recent times. So let's hope they can deliver. And then finally, and I and and I I tend to agree with you there that you know we've got clubs in the lower competitions with groups that are you know should should really finish in the top two um in these groups so it's a it's a mentality that has to change the french clubs have to say look we're going to focus on europe it may be the euro the europa conference league as is the case angus in group a for Lille, but they're taking on slovan bratislava the slovakian team olympia ljubljana from slovenia and klaksvik from the faroe islands now Luxvik is almost certainly not the way that is meant to be said. I did try and look on the internet this afternoon to work out how to pronounce that. The closest I could get was something along the lines of Luxvik. But uh, Angus, no matter how you say it, Lil should be getting through from this group, surely. Yeah, they should do it, particularly as they've, uh, they've got off to a better start in Liga than they, um, than they, they managed to last season. Uh, they seem to have carried on that better form that they uh, had at the end of last season, I think that Lille are probably a club that are probably a little disappointed that they're only in the Conference League. They would have been anticipating much higher than that, at least, the very least, the, um, the, the Europa League, which they were in the running for until quite late uh, last season. 
you cannot of, of all the clubs i think of, uh, in all of these competitions i think they are the club that you would expect to have the easiest time of it getting through to the knockout stages well there you have it the uh lay of the land in the european competitions coming up for the french clubs six french clubs involved in European competition this season. Let's hope for the coefficient and also for the joy of supporting a French club in the latter stages of European competition. It's a joy reserved to too few uh, in recent seasons. So uh, let's hope that this is a year that the French clubs can shine on the continent. Well, we have been going a long time. We're almost done. We are with uh, courtesy of the international break, which will eat up a week. When we are out of action, we just have to preview round five of the coming season. It's in two weeks' time, and then we will be back to look ahead to Paris Saint-Germain versus Olympic de Marseille in round six and the matches coming up after that. But let's look ahead to round five of the season coming up and some big games. As always, there are Paris Saint-Germain will get us underway on the Friday night when they host Nice Rennes versus Lille, Reims versus Brest. That is fourth versus fifth. Is the bubble about to burst for one of those two sides? Last season's surprise packet, Lorient. They get to measure themselves against the league leaders, AS Monaco and Olympique de Marseille in a battle of the south against Toulouse as well. Lens against Metz. Um, there's plenty to look forward to in this round. Very quickly, gentlemen, because uh, otherwise we'll be still doing the pod when round five of the league comes around and we'll miss a couple of games. Andreas, what catches your eye in round five and why? I'm looking out for, for Lyon. Uh, Lyon, they're home to Lavre. And, I, you know, we use this term must win perhaps too much, but I really do think if Lyon don't win that, Laurent Blanc, if he's still in post, um, is going to be in real trouble. I'm sure the others want to talk about PSG. And also Lons, I'm really hoping... Um, that this is a chance for Lons to kickstart their season because they've got two home games now, Mets and Toulouse. And uh, I think they could win those two and, and get well clear of the bottom. So I'll, I'll look out for uh, Lyon and Lons next week. Angus, Strasbourg have been excellent at home so far this season. Have you got your eye on that one against uh, what's been a misfiring Montpellier the last two games? No, I haven't, actually. I have not got my eyes on uh, the Strasbourg one. I've taken my eyes off of Strasbourg uh, of late. Uh, no, I think, I, I think Roseanne Park really stands out for me, uh, in this one, Ren against Lille, two sides who probably everybody's agreed underperformed to their potential last season, but uh, getting off to better starts at the beginning of the campaign, both with genuine ambitions to get into the Champions League this season. And I think that's going to be quite a heavyweight clash. Fantastic. Andy Scott, last but not least, what is catching your eye? I suppose I'd better mention PSG Nice. Um, obviously PSG uh, that's before the start of the Champions League campaign the first of three home games for them in about nine days if I'm not mistaken they'll have Borussia Dortmund just after that and Marseille after that so uh, quite a run of home games to come for them Um, and yeah it'll be interesting because Nice have defended very well in the first few weeks of the season and PSG obviously looked absolutely formidable in attack um, last night and might just have a certain Rondel Colomani ready to come in that's right. And Nice have had a, a certain Terra Moffi back on the score sheet. And of course, Paris Saint-Germain won't have forgotten Terra Moffi against them in seasons past either at uh, FC Lorient back in the day. You're listening, or you were listening 
to Angus Tarode, Andy Scott and Andreas Evagora on Le Bourgeois, the official league and podcast. We will be back in two weeks' time after the international break to look back at round five of the season and then look ahead to the big game, Paris Saint-Germain versus Olympique de Marseille, the first classique of the season. We'll have player profiles. We'll take another little trip down memory lane as well and uh, have all the news between here and then of everything that's going on to do with French football, international club and otherwise. We certainly hope you've enjoyed listening to this latest episode of Le Bourgeois, the official Ligue 1 podcast. Like, subscribe, follow and tell your friends about us as well. Let's get the word out there. The most underrated of the top six leagues in Europe. Ligue 1. And we will see you again very, very Bye. soon. Bye-bye.